Welcome to your podcast, Leadership is Tricky, where we'll tackle various topics, challenges, and experiences as it relates to your investment in leadership. So let's design success together. Now your hosts. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Leadership is Tricky. Uh, I'm back on with uh, Stephen. How you doing, Stephen? What's up, Eric? How you doing, man? Oh, I can't complain. I'm excited. It's season four. Uh, we closed out season three in good fashion with a lot of uh, uh, you know good episodes last season. I think uh, this season is going to be uh, probably our best one ever because we got a lot of uh, firepower lined up and 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 uh, various guests coming on. But I know you've uh, you know you've been you know taking some time off to to get your life situated. So you know what's been going on with you. Uh, lots, you know, making a, an intercontinental move with the family, trying to get situated in a new place that I've never lived, uh, meeting new people, new job, new requirements and responsibilities, uh, kids getting older, getting more active in things. I mean, parenting and life and just, you know, things like that. Um, it's been, it's been a roller coaster. We could always, I think, tee that up for a nice conversation. That would be really good to, to work through and, uh, see where that transition is going. But you know what? The good thing is uh, we're pretty much grounded now. So I've actually lived in two houses since I left the other continent that we lived in. So uh, to say the least, the, the good things are like, I'm still married. Kids are still alive. Cats haven't died. So uh, things are good. I mean, I can't complain about the the basic necessities, you know. <laughs> Perfect. Got a mortgage again. And yeah, family's yeah. good. <laughs> gotta, right. gotta live the uh, the American dream, quote unquote, right? Yeah. So uh, we have a, a, a very special guest today. Um, and uh, it's Darian Akins. Um, so uh, Darian uh, is someone who I met um, when I went to the OMR Festival in Hamburg, Germany, almost a year ago um, this week, I think. Um, so, so welcome to the to the podcast, Darian. How are you? Well, thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here, and nice to meet you, Stephen. Uh, no, I, life's good. I can't really complain. Uh, recently, well, I guess as of last summer, I moved back to the United States and getting settled settled in again, uh, and seems to be going pretty well, so I can't really complain. And you're back in D.C. now, right? Correct, correct. Oh, man, yeah. I-95 bandit. But I, well, back in the mothership, but um, I'm I, what is it? Is the movie called uh, Clint Eastwood in the Line of Fire? He's like, I'm a proponent of public transportation, so I don't oh. like to. I don't. I don't take the drive. <laughs> Man, we. So, so I like being I driven. That. That's great. <laughs> so, so which one are you? Are you slugging? Are you on the subway? Uh, how are you getting in? Where I have a there, where I live, there's an express bus that takes the HOV lane. So uh, for door to door, it takes me like about 45 minutes. It's not bad at all. Oh, that's not bad at all. I know when I lived in the Beltway, it took me an hour and a half in the morning, two and a half in the back. Oof. Yeah, it was it was miserable. But yeah, yeah, I make life decisions every day, get on the expressway. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not complaining about the commute. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. nice. Nice. Yeah. So yeah, so we met and we kind of uh, kind of scheduled this almost a year ago saying, hey, we're going to get on, you know, we'll get you on. And I know everyone was transitioning. I was probably the only one kind of grounded in my situation. So, um, yeah, so just uh, what I want to do is just take a moment to for you to introduce yourself to to the audience. You know, just tell us a bit about yourself and, and then we'll go from there. 
Very good. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, as you already said, yeah, my name is uh, Darian Akins, and I am a senior foreign service officer in, at the State Department. Uh, for those who might not know, uh, the Foreign Service is the um, part of the State Department, and we're the ones responsible for carrying out our relationships with foreign countries. And so we do that through our embassies and consulates around the world. As for me, um, I um, was born in a little small town uh, in Oklahoma. You've never heard of it, so I won't mention it, but it's a little small town, perpetual population 6,000. And definitely, um, I did not think that I would ever be in the career that I am in. Uh, when I was about, I guess about 11, 12, I moved to Texas, which is where my formative years were. Uh, and then after graduating high school, I went to Texas A&M University, where I studied, uh, well, started out in business, didn't go as planned. And so I switched into political science, but I was too far down that road to kind of give it all up. So I ended up getting an interdisciplinary degree with political science and business. Um and funny enough, you know, my first year out of, of university, I was an educator. So I taught high school, grades 9 through 12, American history and the prep courses for the PSAT and SAT. I'll I won't bore you with the long story how that happened, but anyway, it, it, it did. It happened. Um, and I enjoyed teaching. I love the kids. Uh, parents, uh, not so much. Right. <laughs> so, then, so then I moved on from that and uh, joined the Peace Corps. That's where I was introduced to the Foreign Service. Uh, for the first time, I met a Foreign Service officer who, after he got to know me, he thought that I might make a good Foreign Service officer, but I was still full of, I was still young, full of vim and vigor, and he didn't do much more than plant a seed. But fast forward a few years later, I was working in Japan um, and kind of thought that uh, now it's about the time I need to find a career. And uh, eventually, uh, while I was in Japan, I took the test, and the rest, as they say, is history. And then I've been in the Foreign Service for the last almost 21 years. This summer to be 21 years. Wow. No, that's cool. So, uh, yeah, so we come back a little bit. I know you didn't want to mention your your town of Oklahoma, but maybe one of those <laughs> 6,000 people that are listening. So, um, yeah, so... Yeah, so, well, so I, can, I can tell you it's it's Hugo, Oklahoma. I just know that no one's never they've never heard of it. It's called the City of Abundant Water, right. uh, and it's about twenty five miles north of Paris, Texas, right across the Red River. If you if you kind of know, yes, yeah, so you're right. I've never heard of it. What about you? Steve? <laughs> <laughs> I forewarned you. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. So, uh, yeah, so so tell us about growing up. You know, in, you know, I know you, you split time between Oklahoma and Texas, right? So around right. 11 or 12, you moved in, you know, early teenage years. So um, tell us about growing up in, in those areas. So, so Hugo um, is like any typical rural American town. Um, not much there. Great, wonderful people. Um, but I, I guess what I would point out, at least my time my 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 time in in Hugo Oklahoma the thing that i uh took away most from that is um if you'll allow me a, the indulgence of telling you a little bit of story about my grandparents uh, so my my mother's parents they owned a nursing home and it was it was great growing up getting to see them own a business and i as i grew up i got to hear the story of how that came to be because my grandmother um she got a nursing certificate, nursing degree, I think back in the 1940s, and 
she um no one would hire her you know as as a black woman at that time no one would hire her and then so my grandfather eventually said to her well you know hazel what do you want to do and she said you know if i had my druthers i'd i'd like to own a nursing home and he said okay so we're going to make that happen and growing up and just listening to the way that they had to overcome the challenges to establish the nursing home that kind of instilled me with a sense of like grit determination that you know that like never let people tell you no you pursue your own path in life and so that 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 kind of sums up my time in Hugo and then I um my parents and I moved to Texas um and I went to uh I think I started the sixth grade oh no I started in the fifth grade fifth grade in Texas and uh went through high school there um, and I think still to this day, most of my, I still have quite a number of friends from my high school days. And then a few of us went off to Texas A&M uh, after that. And then I, at Texas A&M is where I met my best friend. Uh, we've been friends now for God, 30, 30 years. <laughs> right. Yeah, every time you throw a number out there, you start to think about, man, I'm seasoned. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, like fine wine, fine wine, Eric, fine wine. <laughs> That's it. I'm more like boxed wine at this point, right? <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, so everything you've told me, though, you know, even starting back with your grandparents and then going into the Peace Corps and going into teaching and all these things to serve, like, you know, did you just always have this calling to lead or was that just, you know, grounded in your, you know, grandparents kind of struggle? And, and, you know, circumstance that kind of propelled you forward? I guess that I was a bit of, um, I won't say nerdy. It's I, it's not the proper, I, I, I was a little bit unusual. And, uh, pardon? Studious? <laughs> <laughs> um, I wouldn't even say I was studious, but I did have, I, I, I'll say this. I had a curiosity about the world genuinely had a curiosity about the world i remember i would read the tv guide you know most people would like look at the tv guide what tv shows are on well no i'm reading the tv guide and i always want to know which news programs were on and i from a very young age i really wanted to know about the world and that's the thing i could i can say the most but i didn't really know where i was going what it what it would what it meant to me i was just curious um and i had you know, I was your typical child. I, I wanted to be a policeman, then I wanted to be a fireman, then I wanted to be a doctor, then I wanted to be a lawyer, then I wanted to be a business person, but I didn't know what that meant. Um, and it really didn't start to come into focus until I was in at university of, well, I know I want to do something that allows me to explore the world, to see the world, but I don't know what that is. And so I think that is why I did a number of, you know, started a number of careers or started a number of activities trying to find my way in life. And I did, I took my time. And I, I guess the, the, where I was lucky is that I was able to hold off on certain life decisions until I found my path. I mean, I didn't get married. I didn't buy a house. I didn't take the job that I had to take to pay off the loans and things like that. I I really tried to find my path in life. And so I think that that was the more interesting part. And so, you know, like I said, it wasn't until um, Peace Corps where that seed was planted. And then it wasn't until I was in Japan where 
I finally that seed germinated. And I was like, yeah, if I look back over all of my experiences since since uh, university, that path makes a lot of sense. Hey, right. Darian. So let me let me jump in here. I want to maybe pry a little bit after your comments on didn't make life decisions. My perspective is you were still making life decisions, maybe not the the traditional ones that a lot of us talk about with, like you said, finding a spouse or a mate in life and like signing up for the house and the mortgage and finding roots and all those things. I, I feel like you were still making some really cool, like listening to your intro, you know, the teaching thing and, and helping young minds, you know, become greater than they could probably ever imagine. And then what I want to ask you, though, is from that to the Peace Corps, you kind of went over that relatively quickly. Can you talk yeah. about why you thought about, you know, serving in, you know, really a, not a glamorous job, but you get to go out and, you know, catch this curiosity that you're talking about, go see something new and travel and do all those things. Like what what caused you to want to uh, to join up with the Peace Corps? Well, no, it was, as you pointed out, that um, I, I, I did have this sense I wanted to give back to the community, but I didn't have a good sense of what that was. Just I wanted to give back to the community. So that's why I taught in an inner city school in Dallas. Um, uh, for lack of better terminology, I was, I was headhunted to do that. They wanted um, male teachers, particularly black male teachers, to work in the inner city schools. Um, and so I went through the process of getting provisionally licensed to do that. Um, and as I said, it 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 I, I loved the kids, I loved the job. The parents made it a little bit of a challenge, and I still had that desire. And somehow Peace Corps came into being. Yeah, so then I I still had that desire that I wanted to give back, and um and someone had mentioned to me about Peace Corps, so I looked into that while I was still teaching, and then um. And then I eventually signed up to do that and went in and went into the Peace Corps. And it very much was the idea that I thought I'm going to go overseas um, and help all of these people. And um, why that was life changing was that was the attitude that I entered the service with. Like, you know, I'm as an American going to go over and going to help people who are less advantaged than us. And I will tell you. I walked away from that experience more enriched, gaining more from them than I ever gave them. Um, and that helped me to gain a better perspective of my place in the world. Like, of it is not about what we traditionally think of and what we can give and what we can do and that we're helping other people. Um, it kind of gets to, I think, I've, you know, I've heard in a couple of your podcast episodes where you're talking about being a servant leader it's not about it's not about you as a leader if you're a true leader it's about you serving others and trying to make them find their path find their strength find what they're good at um and this is why why it was um rather um contrary to my initial thoughts is that when i went into the peace corps Zambians helped me to find myself, to find my path, to find what what skills I had, what talents I possessed, what I was good at, because it made me take a really deep look at myself. And mm -hmm. um, and so from there, I had a 
a really good understanding of who I was by the end of the service, whereas going in, I didn't. Right. Yeah, I I think that speaks volumes. Um, you know, you talked about servant leadership and making it about bigger than yourself. And, you know, like you said, going off and promoting, you know, Western and democratic ideals and the things that Americans bring. Um, what what uh, what an experience it would have been just to kind of like what you said, listen, learn, understand the local culture, uh, the local, you know, population and, and humans that are there. And I think it back like strip all of the American and you know the ideal idealistic things that you know, that, that our country's trying to do. At the end of the day, we're just people, pretty much probably getting after the same core values and intrinsic motivations that most of us want in life. And uh, you you were in a position to give a little bit of yourself, and then they it sounds like you got even more after giving what you gave. So uh, commend you for that. I think. That naturally kind of brings us to, you know, you, you did the Peace Corps for, for a hot minute there and got to uh, learn about yourself and kind of what your your purpose in life is. Then it sounds like you made a really strong life decision there that, you know, 21 years later, you're still doing. Uh, can you talk a little bit about like being a foreign service officer and why that sparked something inside of you to choose that as your profession? Yeah, and I have to tell you a little bit of a story about that first, so because um, this is where it all came from. Sure. I had a counterpart in Zambia, so the person, a Zambian that I worked with to do projects and programs. And one day he said, hey, he called me Akins. He said, Akins, um, I got a question for you. And I said, okay. And he said, you know, um, I know, you know, American, it's a, America is a wealthy society. And, but I've also, I also know that there are Americans who don't receive an education. And he's like, and I don't understand why. And I said, what, what do you mean? And he said, well, you have a public, uh, public school system and some people don't do, you know, don't go through the public school system, but even more so than that, you have a public library system. So like, I have to pay for my kids to go to school here. Um, and I have to pay for everything. There is no public library system. I have to pay them for them to go to school. And I said, yeah. And he said, so he said, so even if you live in a community where you think the school system is horrible, most Americans still have, would have access to public libraries. And I said, yes. And he said, so then why wouldn't they educate themselves through the library system? And I, that was enlightening. I had never, was, when I thought about it, I was like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so that started me down this path and then i started thinking because i did as i went through my peace corps service and looking at america from the outside in um i did become more patriotic in this sense that i was thinking what makes us unique and here's what i kind of came up with and this is also going back to my time in zambia is that i felt that while America has made many mistakes in its history and its past, and it continues to make a few, um, the promise of what and who we are is the thing that I looked at. And what I mean by that is when I looked around the world and I had started to travel, I realized that America, definitely of the more developed countries, influential countries, is the only one where you choose your citizenship. And what I mean by that is that 
you know, someone in our past chose for us to either immigrate to America, to come to America, or we, uh, some, uh, as an American, we chose that ourselves and naturalized as citizens. And that is uniquely different in the world. And I felt like if the United States could get that right, if we could truly make it where, um, because currently, if I want to, if I went around the world and I wanted to be a citizen of another country, I wanted to, and I really loved the culture, I loved the language, I wanted to learn everything about that place, I wanted to be whatever that was. In most cases, it's not possible. Most places, they will tell you, no, 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 you don't have the blood, your parents are not from here, that's just not possible. Whereas America, that's possible. And I think that says a lot about where we can go in the world. That eventually, that thought led me into, wait a minute, I can do this through the Foreign Service. I can promote that idea, that concept, and serve the country um, and and promote this idea that, you know, there is hope for the world to choose to do things together. Um, and the rest, as they say, is history because I started the process and I came in and and as part of that, I, you know, every country that I've ever served in, I participate in what we call our public diplomacy platform, where I go out and I talk to students, high school students and college students. And so this issue comes up constantly. So I'm able to, you know, discuss that idea in, in a lot of ways. And so I've been able, I appreciate it being able to do that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, well, thanks for that, too. Um, and so being a foreign service officer, right, you know, you're out there communicating um, to foreign governments on international issues and, you know, represent our country's interests in, in, in that regard, right? Um, and that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> you know, that's, you know, yeah, Steve and I, you know, we work for the Department of Defense and, you know, we always see ourselves as, you know, the spokesperson for, you know, the, you know, the U.S. as we're out here traveling through the world. But, you know, you're actually in a position of authority, formal authority to do that, mm. um, you know, negotiating uh, treaties and agreements and, you know, working through consulates and, and, and all of that. But, you know, how do you prepare, prepare for something like that, for that responsibility to put on your shoulders? For me, it is approaching it with the idea that I simply have to do what I think is right. Um, what is the, what are we trying to achieve and, and determine like what I think is the best path, best path forward, because the higher you rise, uh, particularly in the foreign service, there are, there are no people to tell you, yeah, you're doing a good job. Yeah, that's great. You, you, you have to have a sense of, well, this is what I think. This is the path that I'm going to follow. And typically the only feedback you'll get is when you get off the, when you somehow take a detour and people are like, hey, hey, <laughs> we, 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 we don't think that that's the proper, proper path. Um, but typically it's, it's, it's having a good sense of who you are, anchoring yourself at what you're trying to achieve, taking in, you know, U.S. government policy or or the administration's policy and trying to push that forward, realizing that there will be very limited feedback in terms of how well you're doing that, how well you're implementing, how well you're executing. The first time you'll hear something typically is if something goes wrong. Um, and so that requires you to have um, a good sense of who you are. 
be anchored in the moment that like that it is not about being right or or wrong it is about contributing to a process and then this process is to move and advance u.s foreign policy and when i take that view it makes it possible for me to sit at the decision making tables and whether someone is the at the disagreements right because there will be discussions and people can disagree and sometimes you'll find that you know you know, people will find you're the only one with that position. Right. And the tendency would be if you're not anchored, you're like, well, I have to be wrong. Everyone else disagrees with me and you want to change your change your point of view. <clears throat> I've learned, and this is the biggest lesson I've learned. No, that is not my job. My job is to give you my best advice. And if you disagree with that, then you disagree with that. But I am contributing to a process where we're vetting the issues from A to Z. And so that we are putting this on the table for other decision makers higher than us to say, okay, here are the menu of options. Here's what's before us. They have discussed this um, here based on all of that. Here's the best path, best, best path forward um, to, to not do that. To not do that, to not give my best advice is a failure in leadership. Right. No, I think, uh, yeah, I think we've all been in, uh, in those positions, right? So whether Steve or I, where we sit within an organization, um, you know, based on, you know, where, where we've, you know, risen to where we are in our careers, right? It's, it's oftentimes, right? It's lonely at the top and you got to take all that feedback from those below you take all those data points and make the best decision that you can make. And hopefully it's grounded in good values. Um, you know, um, I won't, I would say absent of beliefs because beliefs can change, but, you know, unbiased, unprejudiced, um, good decision, sound decision-making and you live with that decision and you're right. You know, things never get brought up if everything's going great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I would offer an interesting perspective as well. So you're, you know, out there interfacing with countries and, and state level, you know, organizations that aren't U.S. led. Uh, we have interests, but we don't really have a forcing function, if you will. Like it's purely negotiation, diplomacy uh, and finding like a common purpose and why between the two organizations. Um, I can't even imagine what that's like personally. Um, Eric is hitting the nail on the head. You know, we go through you know, leadership development programs and, you know, ability to, to, uh, to coach and mentor and negotiate and, and work amongst ourselves inside of an organization. But in our organizations, there's still someone in charge that takes the risk or takes the decision points and, and has to make it so that we can keep moving forward. Can you describe a little bit about when you're stymied, when there's kind of a, there is a, a point that maybe the, the the advice that you said you're giving isn't uh, being listened to or heard but for whatever reason, and there's an impasse. Can you, like, what do you do in that moment from a leadership lens? Yeah, yeah, and I've had this, uh, and it's, it's hard. It's hard, um, or as you might say, it's tricky, uh, <laughs> because... Thanks for the plug, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it is because um, I had a situation not long ago where I found myself 
being the sole um, person in, in a leadership position who had the position that I had. And, and at first I thought, am I crazy? Like, I, I think I understand that, that, that this is, you know, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm off the mark here. I think I'm giving very good advice. Um, but the pressure kept coming like, no, this is not, you, you, you're off the mark. Um, this is not the path that we need to go down. And I kept giving my rationale as to no, I, I disagree. I, I'm, I'm, you know, this is my point of view. I'm very certain that based on all the information I have, um, based on my interactions with my interlocutors, this is what we should be doing. And the pressure kept coming, like, no, you need to change course. And then, so you have to be careful. So I, I reached out to people I trusted and said, hey, here's a situation. And I never tell people specifically because you don't, you never want to give them all the details. That's also not a good thing. So I just said, here is generally the situation I'm facing. What do you think? Um, and these are people that I trust. And so they would say, you know, they don't tell me yes or no. They say, you know, here's something to consider. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And ultimately, do you think you're going to win this argument? Do you think that, and I, and I, and in this case, it was very important when the person, well, there were a couple people that said, do you think you're going to win this argument? And I said, well, wait a minute, why does that matter if I'm going to win the argument or not? I like, in my view, this is the right thing to do. This is how we would advance American foreign policy. And so I don't, I don't know that I have to ultimately win out here. There's a position that I have, and I have to give that advice. Um, and we have mechanisms to do that uh, within the Department of State. And I used every single one of those mechanisms to make sure that the my position, my point of view was heard and evaluated. And when I got an official response back of like, we disagree with you, but we appreciate you for continuing to advocate in this fashion. Um, then, I'll, then I said, okay, because now leadership had the information. They could make a decision. I knew that I had been heard and they disagreed. That's fine. But what I didn't want to do was back away from my position simply because everyone else said, you're wrong. And here's, and here's why it matters. By pushing it, um, no, I didn't win the argument, but I changed the scope such that other considerations were brought in that strengthened the policy that did move forward. And I received from senior leadership an appreciation for doing that. And, and, and it did make a difference. It made a difference in terms of money and resources. It made a difference in terms of how others were going to perceive our actions and our policy, um, all because I could weather everyone telling me you're wrong. <laughs> no, I, I think 
so many thoughts are coming to my mind. I, I, I love how you have to double down on what you said is right in your heart of hearts. You don't back down. I think that's what I'm hearing you uh, communicate. So kind of to the listeners, if, if, if there's something that I would want to like put stomp here and then, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll continue on. Um, this happens more times than not. And even, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the vignette was like inside of an organization, but even between organizations, you know, if you're trying to negotiate like an agreement between, you know, monies or accesses to a thing that, you know, both of you have a common interest in, uh, you're going to get to those points, but you can't relinquish, like, like, I think Eric, you said it earlier, the core value that like we hold right. together through, and you have to show, you have to show strength there. Because um, when you waver, or you uh, potentially don't have that solid footing and foundation, um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't allow others to see like sh- strength in, in what your platform and what your leadership kind of is at the end of the day. What, what are your thoughts, Eric? I think there's, you know, there's been many situations is, you know, who I am, Steve, I I stand on being my authentic self always. And, you know, that always doesn't always align with other people's kind of, uh, I don't want to say it's their agenda, right? Uh, Or, you know, you know, their, their want to further their own cause or their own, you know, gain their own political, you know, um, you know, credits. Um, I, I believe in maintaining my authentic self and, and following my true north. And I, I feel like if you stay that path, you'll always be grounded in, in your own values. Um, because you know, you, oftentimes a lot of folks will, they'll waver, right? Because they think there's going to be this this quick gain. But in in the long run, right, your name is associated with that and your legacy is associated with that. And if you're a person that wavers all of the time, you could tarnish you know, all of that, all of that work that you've put in up to that point. So I, I just, you know, for the listeners, for everyone out there is, you know, continue on your true north, on, on your true north and be your authentic self always, especially in leadership. Um, you know, there's a few things that I always talk about, you know, honesty, empathy, accountability, and trust. And you can't get to that trust if, if you're not being your authentic self. So um, I'll get off my soapbox now, but. Well, yeah. and the one the one thing I would add there, Eric, is, and this is something that I really appreciated, when I was speaking to one of my mentors, and finally the mentor said, okay, if you're going to do this, here's what you need to understand. Here's the kind of pressure you're going to come under. This is what it's going to look like. This is the form that it's going to take. Are you prepared for that? Right. And that's also something I would say to your listeners, as you rise be that kind of mentor, um, help the person do the right thing or to be themselves, to be the, their authentic selves. Don't encourage people to give in because it's the easier path because you don't learn anything from that. Right. Um, and plus, at the end of the day, nor are you going to be a benefit to the organization if you um, cannot follow your own judgment right no no that's fair so um yeah so i really wanted to touch on because you talked about being in zambia i know you're in the united states and i met you in germany so you are well traveled (laughs) you talk about being in japan and taking your test and um you know where else have you been um you know assigned let's see uh my inaugural post in the foreign service was malaysia then India, Afghanistan, uh, Australia, Indonesia, 
um, the National War College in Washington, D.C., and then I had a job working for the European Bureau for a couple years, and then I went to Germany, where I was the Consul General, uh, and then I came back to the States last year, and now I'm serving as a um, diplomat in residence um, responsible for Washington, D.C., Delaware, Maryland, and West Virginia. This is my region where I try to encourage and inspire um, students and young professionals to think about a career in diplomacy. Nice. Yeah. So, you know, Steve and I, we, we've, we've traveled the world, right. Uh, and uh, we've seen, we've seen a lot of places as well. And we know that, you know, each assignment or each, each location presents its own unique challenges and opportunities. Um, you know, how, you know, one, one, two questions, right. One, what was your favorite assignment, <laughs> you know, and then second, you know, how did you adapt to the cultural differences in those in in those locations um i won't say favorite but probably the most memorable uh and they always say this this is your first tour is your most unforgettable tour right uh and in my case it, it happens to be true um and it was it was because of this it was um malaysians really were truly hospitable that uh you know here in the united states you might go bar hopping but malaysians go restaurant hopping so they would say hey let's go out for coffee and they just really wanted to have coffee to introduce their cuisine their culture the cities and they're like oh let's go to this place there's a really good restaurant and then you'd end up restaurant hopping uh to different ones and sampling different food and going to different places and so um, because of that um, cultural experience, I was able to visit seven out of the nine uh, provinces in, in Malaysia. And so I got a really good understanding of Malaysians and a really good understanding of the country and to, to be able to travel around. And, and that's what makes the experience is when you can really uh, immerse yourself in the culture with the people, learn truly how and why the country functions the way it does. Yeah, that I, that was just a memorable. That was uh, an indelible experience. Now that's me. The, on the other side, the 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 post or the assignment where my family was in German, that say Zufrieden, everyone was satisfied. Um, my son, my wife, me. That was Germany. Everyone was, uh, no one had any issues. My son was like, okay, I like the school eventually, not in the, initially. Uh, my wife really liked living in Hamburg. She really enjoyed it. I loved the experience. So that was a place for the entire family. Now I can't compare it to Malaysia because our son was born in Malaysia. So he wasn't there yet. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, that's cool. I think you just like the food, though. It's fine. Yeah, we need to, we that's need to bring true. back that uh, restaurant hopping culture. We need to have that in the States. I like that. <laughs> yeah, you know, somebody mentioned to me a couple months ago um, that, and I didn't notice this. It's like, if you go visit a, like, even if I go, like, for a German engagement, like, with a German partner or something, or even when I was out in Poland, they always offer you food, drink, and it's more of a social atmosphere when you get in. In, yeah. in there right and you kind of start working your way up into like getting to know each other then you jump in the business you know every time we host an event I mean we might have some snacks or coffee in the corner but it's like straight to work 
It's like, hey, if you need to use the restroom, it's over there. If you need <laughs> to get a cookie or a coffee, it's over there. Um, you know, help yourselves. But we're getting down to business, right? There's no, there's no, no warming up to it. And we, we got to bring that to America. We got to bring that to, to, you know, just our, our engagements. It's like, let's just pause for a minute, get to know each other over coffee or tea or something like that, juice. Um, yeah. But let's start with the food. I think everyone likes to eat. It's just, I, I mean, drive down anywhere, USA, and there's restaurants galore. I mean, the only right. bad thing is restaurant hopping here is you're taking your life in your own hands by having to cross lanes <laughs> of traffic to go anywhere. <laughs> right. But right. I think that that's required. Um, and eventually you're going to have to do it. If you skip that step, because that really is step one, eventually you're going to have to get there before you can come to an agreement or have a negotiation. Right. Um, that's uh, what I found from my experience. So you might as well do that up front, meaning I'll give you an example. So almost in all of my positions, I have always for when I'm supervising people on a staff for the first, usually 20 to 30 minutes of the day, I go around and I'm just, saying hi hello i i don't even go to my office i don't go to my office the first thing out of the day and turn on the computer because once you're there you're trapped you got to go around and just talk to people well that's that that allows them to know hey i'm open is there any issue i can see how they're doing you know oh there's something you don't look like you're doing okay or is something bothering you you can address things right away and it's the same thing when you're meeting people initially you gotta you got to talk to them like, hey, where are you from? You're like, what, what kind of food do you like? What brought you here? You have to do that because what you're doing is looking for these common connections. And it's only when you find those that you right. find, oh, okay, let's, now I want to work with that person. I want to, I want this to be successful. Um, if you just start with, let's get down to business, um, you know, if, unless it's an emergency situation, that's the only time I would say you got to get down to business. You don't have time, right? Right. You got to deal with the issue. Other than that, I I would say that you you definitely have to spend your time trying to find those threads of commonality. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna plug an episode Eric and I did. We talked about is it mission first or is it people first? <laughs> and I think the common denominator we 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 both came into an, and I, again I'm speaking for Eric a little bit here. So correct me if I'm wrong. It's been a hot minute since we've had this combo. <laughs> But uh, I think we agreed it's people first. You've got to have those relationships and Always. bonds. And it drives the mission. It will drive the accomplishments and the execution. And, you know, me staying up, you know, into the wee hours of the night, getting after a task that's due tomorrow, because I know you're in it with me. We have these battles, you know, battle scars together. And we're going to have this like cool story to talk about one day down the road, but we're doing it together. And, and there's this like, there's, it's hard to say it's it's a it's a common bond and a common thing yeah. between one to more persons and i'm not i mean it, we're, we're being general too like you know the american mindset is you know execution production let's go make profit let's go be efficient let's just get after the work um i, I sense that there's something changing in the in the air um I got to really, so darian let's, let's bring it to the real world and like what's going on in the past two to three years you said going around meeting people that first thing in the morning. How do you do that virtually? I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Hey, Leadership is Tricky audience. I hope you're enjoying season four, episode one with Mr. Darian Akins. Part two will air next Sunday, so stay tuned.